So what is love? That's a big question, isn't it? Certainly there have been a myriad of songs that have been written about it, countless poems that have been written about it, unending discussions that have taken place over this topic, what is love? And that's a word that uh, certainly means a lot of different things depending on the context. Uh, If I say I love my family, that means one thing. If I say I love this cool weather, Alita, I'm with you on that. That means something else, right? I've been uh, unusually excited about the the weather this week. Uh, If I say I love Chinese food, or if I say I love my church family, I mean, those all mean different things, right? But here's the question that I really want us to think about. What does it mean to say that we love God? I mean, that might be something that would kind of roll off the tongue pretty easily. But I mean, really, this. Let's kind of drill down a little bit today and say, what does that mean? Because that word love can mean so many different things. And it's a word that we use often, maybe even too often at times. But this is the most common theme in John's letter that we are in. We're in the letter of 1 John and continuing on in that series. Um, Remember, I guess this shouldn't be a surprise to us that that love is the, the primary theme of 1 John, because remember that the person who wrote this is John the disciple, who describes himself in the Gospel of John, how? Remember? As the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's, that was John's identity. And it might seem a little odd that he would refer to himself that way. I'm thinking, well, is he trying to say, Jesus loved me more than anyone else? Is he trying to pat himself on the back and say, I'm the one that Jesus loved? I I don't think so at all. In fact, there's really no way for us to know for sure. But what I suspect is that perhaps like many of us, John may have had a hard time coming to grips with the fact that Jesus loved him and feeling unworthy of that love and maybe feeling like he let Jesus down in some ways. And so maybe for John to describe himself as the disciple that Jesus loved might have been a way for him just to remind himself of this reality, right? And to say, yes, he loves me too. Not he loves me more or uniquely, but Jesus loves me just like he loves everybody else. And that's true for every one of us. But John seemed to really wrestle with and, and, and soak in this truth that Jesus loved him. And so he had a lifetime to reflect on that. Most scholars will tell us that the, the uh, letters, starting with 1 John, were written around 90 A.D., So that means that we have roughly 60 years or so after the death of Christ. So this is a long, long time. John had lived a long life and had been thinking through and processing this whole idea of the love of God for decades and decades and decades before he writes this letter of 1 John. And so we see that theme come out several different times in his book. But the question that I want us to to dive into today and that he really, he dives into in chapter 2 where we'll start here in a minute is this, how do we express our love for God? What does it mean to say I love God? Does that mean that I have warm fuzzy feelings toward God? Does that mean that I fear God in such a way that I just obey him because I'm afraid of what will happen if I don't? I mean, what does it mean to say that I love God? And here's uh, one of the things that I, that I want us to, to really wrap our minds around is this, that, that love 
that love has to be expressed in the context of a relationship in order for it to really be love, right? If there's no real relationship, then it's something other than that. I mean, think about if, if, for example, if you were to have a conversation with a young man and he's describing the love of his life. He's describing this wonderful woman that he is so in love with and he can tell you everything about her and, and uh, you know, just what, what a beautiful person she is inside and out, and how she loves God, and she's kind to people, and her smile can just light up a room, and he can tell you about her interests, he can tell you about her family, he can tell you all these things about her, and he just go on and on and on talking about her for hours and hours and hours, and then in the course of that conversation, you discover that he actually has no relationship at all with this woman that he's talking about. In fact, she maybe doesn't even know that he exists. That's really not love. That's infatuation. In fact, in your mind, it's gone from being really sweet to being kind of creepy, right? <laughs> because love has to be expressed in the context of a relationship. And that's what we see in our relationship with God is that it's all about the opportunity to express that in that, that relationship. And so I want you to open your Bible with me to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to continue on where we left off last week, and that is in verse 3. In verses 3 through 11, as we read this, I just want you to ask yourself the question and look for this in this, in this passage is, what does it look like for us to express our love for God? We know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commands. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not do what He commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys His word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know that we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in Him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. So I want us to focus on just a couple of simple but really profound ways that we can express our love to God that we see in this passage. And the first one is, is found in the first few verses, and it's simply this. We express our love for God when we keep His commands. That's what John says here. In, in fact, it says in verse 5, if anyone obeys His word, love for God is truly made complete in them. That word complete, that, that, that's another word that kind of carries the idea of maturity, so a way that, that we show that our love is for God is maturing is by obeying His Word. Or as the verse right before that phrases it another way, by keeping His commands. We express our love for God by living our lives in a way that honors God. So it's a process. It's, it's maturing that takes place in us. You know, if a person or when a person comes to faith in Christ, stop and think back if, if there's been a time in your life where you have trusted in Christ. Think back to that time and what things were like at that point in your life when you trusted in Christ. And here's one thing that we know for sure, and as we're talking about loving God, uh, chapter 4, and we'll, we'll actually read one of these verses here in just a little bit, but we know 
that we love because he first loved us. Our love is a response to God's love for us. Okay, so that's where it all has to begin. We have to begin with personally experiencing the love of God that he expressed to us through his son Jesus, through his death on the cross on our behalf, through his sacrificial payment on our behalf. That's how we experience the love of God. And so we come into a relationship with God. We, we trust in him and we say yes to Jesus. We, we acknowledge our sinfulness. We have a willingness in our heart to turn away from that sinfulness and say, I'm trusting in Christ. However... It doesn't mean that, that we have it all together at that very moment, does it? I mean, stop and think back in your own life. Um, we don't have it all together when we come to faith in Christ. It's a process. What we acknowledge is, I need you, Jesus, because I don't have it all together. That's the whole point. I don't clean up my act first and then think, maybe now I'm worthy of his love. I say, no, he loves me anyway, in spite of... My rebellion, in spite of the fact that I'm going my own way, God loves me anyway. And, and so I trust in him. He begins to, to do a work in me. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it tells us that we are a new creation in Christ. And so God gives us a new heart. He makes us new on the inside. And I believe with everything in me that God can completely, you know, just totally take away everything from our past at that very moment if he chooses to do so. And in some cases, maybe he does. But here's what my experience tells me, and even reading through Scripture tells me, that most of the time it's a process. Most of the time it's a maturing, you know, we, we come to faith in Christ, God changes our heart on the inside, but that doesn't mean that we're perfect the next day. We're always continually a work in progress. And so when he talks about the love being made complete, he's talking about maturing. He's talking about how the love of God is, it, it matures in us, and the way that we see that is through the, our lives starting to come into better alignment with God's desire for us. Verse 3 says that we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. This is evidence of our relationship with him. This is evidence of the fact that God has changed our hearts. Not that we come to know him because we obeyed him, but we can tell that we have come to know him once we see that in our life. So, um, so, so the flip side of that then is true as well. When it says in verse 3 that we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands, it ought to ask us, make us ask the question, what does that say if there is no life change, if there is no obedience to God's commands. See, what it, what it ought to do is at least make us go back and ask the question, has my heart been transformed? Have I really come to know Christ? And the answer is, it could be. It could be that, that we came to know Christ and genuinely did, but just haven't grown, haven't had a, a process of discipleship and growth. Or it could be that what we thought was coming to know Jesus was maybe just an emotional response of some sort. You know, how, how many people do you know? They say, oh yeah, I remember back in seventh grade and I was at youth camp and, you know, I accepted Christ in my life and there's been absolutely no change in the last 40 years since then. And, you know, maybe, maybe that was a genuine decision, but from what I see in, in Scripture, there ought to be some type of change that takes place in our lives, Right? Not, again, not that we're earning our salvation, but that that is evidence that we have come to know him, it says, and, and, and that we love him. Now, I, I want to be really, really, really clear on this and say that our salvation is 100% based on the finished work of Jesus and 0% based on our own good works. 
It's really, really important for us to understand that. So please don't hear me saying, if you don't have good works in your life, then they, you know, you're not. No, what, what Scripture is saying is the evidence of love for God will show itself in the way that we live. And so uh, we come to, to Christ through faith. Faith is the key that unlocks the storeroom of God's unending supply of grace. So we have faith in Jesus. That gives us access to the grace that God wants to give to us, but that faith will also begin to transform the way we live. Not at all that we won't ever sin again. We know that we will, and that's why uh, he covers the things that he does. That's why back in chapter 1, which we covered last week, uh, when it talks about how when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. Because we are going to fall. We are going to, to make mistakes uh, and, and, and slip back up. But listen to what it says in verse 4. Again, it says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That, that's a strong statement, isn't it? If you claim to know him, if I claim to know him, but I don't do what he commands, then I'm a liar. Now, what we know that that does not mean is do what he commands perfectly without fail, you know, because none of us are ever going to achieve that standard. But it is clear from what he's saying here that I cannot claim to know God and then continue to live my life according to my own desires and what I want to do. Those, those two don't go together. Because when you come to know him, your heart is changed, you belong to him, your priorities change, your desire is to live for God and to honor God. Not that you do it perfectly, but, but that, that is, uh, that's what begins to be important to us. And so the strong words here, I wonder if this is a way to, you know, sometimes we just need to be, um, we need a little reality check. And every once in a while, you know, having someone to kind of get in your face and be a little stern with you is a good way to have a reality check. And I, I think that's what John is doing here by using such strong words. Because as we saw last week, verse 8 of chapter 1 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Remember, we talked about how easy it is for us to deceive ourselves. How easy it is for us to believe things about ourselves that are not true. I had a conversation on Wednesday night before our men's Bible study. One of our guys was here, and uh, he has a daughter that's getting ready to go away to, to college. And he was talking about what she wants to do after school. And he's, and he's wrestling through what a lot of us as parents wrestle through. And he said, you know, she, this is her dream and, and her passion. And yet from his perspective, it's not a real likely uh, path. There's not a lot of opportunity in this particular area that she wanted to pursue. And so he said, I'm wrestling with wanting to be supportive and be like, you know, pursue your dreams and do, you know, go do what you want to do. And at the same time, the reality of this might be a difficult path to follow. And here's, here was his comment to me. He said, you know, I might want to play in the NBA, but that's never going to happen, right? And that, that comment resonated with me and it made me laugh because I thought back to my experience as a child and having to come to grips with reality. Because when I was a little bitty guy, you know, five years old or whatever it was when we started playing, I was one of those kids that my hand-eye coordination just developed more quickly than other kids did. So when I was really little, I was really good. And I thought, this is awesome, you know. And I'm playing in a league with other kindergartners or first graders or whatever, and other people are noticing and commenting to my parents, and maybe he has a, you know, a future in this, and everything's going great. And then as time goes on, you know, and I get older, the dreams start to get a little bit bigger, but as I continue to get older, 
I realize that other people are starting to catch up a little bit, you know, that's kind of how it happens a lot of times. And I remember, I don't know how old I was as a kid, probably, I don't know, second, third grade, something like that. And I've, I've always enjoyed, you know, watching the Olympics and things like that and, and seeing the, the, the U.S. Olympic team, basketball team playing. And I did the math. And back then, by the way, it was all, uh, no professionals played back then. It was all college people that played. And so I did the math and I figured out my senior year of college is the year that the Olympics will be happening. And so I'm thinking, maybe, you know, keep going at it, keep working on Maybe I can play for the U.S. Olympic team. And then years continue to, to pass by, and I remember about sixth grade, I, I, I met uh, the guy that would become my best friend. His name was Terrence. He was new to the area. Met him at school. We became buddies. He would come over to my house all the time. I literally taught him how to play basketball as a sixth grader. He had never played basketball before. He was terrible. But I taught him how to play. We would play each other. One-on-one, you know, I'd beat him every time. Usually wasn't very close. He would get so frustrated, so upset. About two years later, he starts winning every once in a while. Another year after that, he wins every single time we play. And something changed around that time. It went from being, you know, probably the best player in the league as a kindergartner to being a starter and one of the better players on my team in junior high to in high school not making varsity until I was a senior and being about the third guy off the bench. Now, I'm going to tell you, by that point in time, I figured out if I'm the third guy off the bench on a team that's not very good, probably not going to play in the Olympics in 1992. That's probably not going to happen, right? Reality finally set in a little bit. And it just it made me think about that when he shared that story. But I, I, I laugh at that, and it's, it's funny to recollect and think back on those things. But here's the truth is a lot of us never come to grips with reality. We, we just don't. That's a sermon for a whole other day in a whole lot of different areas. But spiritually speaking, sometimes we just don't come to grips with the truth. And we can't see things. We're blind. I know adults that still can't see reality, right? Everybody else around them can see it, and, and sometimes we get blinded by things. And so he's, he's pretty strong here in making a very strong statement to say, look, you, you have to, I don't know how I can say this any more clearly than to say, if you claim to know him, but you don't do what he says, you're a liar. Strong words, but I do think he's making a point that there has to be some type of change that takes place inside of us. Now, I do want to point this out. One of the things I think is really important to say is this, that, that our motivation, and it's, it's spoken in the context, verse 5, of loving God. This is really important. Our motivation for obeying God is love, first and foremost, not fear. I mean, yes, the Bible does talk about the fear of God and honoring God, and yes, it is true that if we rebel against God at some point, we have to pay up for that, right? God's wrath is coming and, and his judgment is real. And so we, we need to be honest. Again, don't fool ourselves on that. Be honest about that. But that should not be the motivation for a child of God to obey him. The motivation is I've been loved by God. I know he loves me. I love him. And because I love him, I desire to live in such a way that pleases him. So that's one way that we are able to express our, our love for God. But here's a second one that we see in this passage, and that is uh, that we love our brothers and sisters. 
not only do we obey him, do what he says, but he says that, that we are to love one another and specifically our brothers and sisters. In verse 9, he says basically the same thing he says in verse 4, but about something else. Verse 9, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. So interesting how on the one hand he talks about one way you can show God your love is through your actions. And then after this it says another way that you can show your love for God is through your attitude specifically toward other believers. Doing what God says but also loving God other brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, let me flip forward just a little bit because one of the things about John's letter is that a lot of the themes are repeated, and so he's kind of you know getting the point home because sometimes we just need to hear it multiple times. But I'm not going to basically preach the same thing multiple times back-to-back uh, -back weeks. So some of this I'm just going to include here. But in chapter 4, he has another lengthy section I would encourage you to read about loving God, and it ties into what we're talking about here today. But verse 19, 1 John 4, 19 through 21, says, We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God and yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. That's pretty clear, isn't it? That, that we cannot claim, just as we can't live a life of complete disobedience to God and say, I know God, we also can't continue to hate a brother or sister and say, I, I love God. That's just what he says here. And so, as much as, as it's important, by the way, for us to love those outside the family of God, and that is important, that is a huge priority for us as a church. I hope that's a priority for you is how do we communicate the love of God to people that don't know Him personally, that aren't yet part of the family of God. And that's something that, that, that I hope you pray through regularly and look for opportunities and share your faith and all that. That's super important. But in this context, that's not what he's talking about. In this context, he's talking about loving those who are within the family of God because it says your brother or sister. He's talking to fellow believers. And... You know, I wonder, I don't, we, we don't know, but I wonder what was going on in the church that caused him to say what he said here. Because the things that he's addressing are specific types of issues, you know. What was happening that he had to warn them uh, not to hate one another? That word hate is a strong, strong word. It comes from a root word, a Greek word that means to detest. I mean, for one member of God's family... To hate another member is the antithesis of what should be happening for us as believers. I mean, you can't get any further away from where we should be. And yet, doesn't that still happen even today in the family of God? Where those who are part of the same family uh, can get crossways with one another. I mean, somebody explain to me what in the world is happening in the church when we can't get along with each other from within the church. What is wrong with us? What, what is happening there? And, and, and sometimes we, you know, we allow other things to get in the way. And I believe this is one of the enemy's greatest tactics is if I can get them divided on these issues or whatever it may be and get them separated from one another, then you know, he's, he's doing his work. 
But we live in, in a culture that is, has become so divided, so polarized, so extreme, maybe is a, a way to say that. And views are so far either way over here or way over here. And, you know, it's like if you're not on my side, then, then we're enemies. And we see that creep itself into the church. And we've talked about this over the last several months because this has been, you know, just in our face so much in our culture. And all that's been going on with pandemics and, you know, different ideas about how to handle that and elections and political things and all that. And, and by the way, I, I mentioned this a few months ago. I know of, and, and just of what I know, there may be more than what I know, but I know of at least two families from within our church that have stopped coming because they felt ostracized because of their political views. They felt like they weren't welcome here. And that absolutely breaks my heart. What, what is wrong with us if we, as the people of God, are allowing anything to come in, in the way and keep us from loving each other well, even when we may have disagreements. I mean, we, our, our priority is that we love one another. Well, we can't claim to love Jesus and hate those that Jesus loves. That's what it's saying here. Just like you would never claim to love another person and yet express hatred toward their children, right? If you have kids and somebody claims to love you but then is just mean and hurtful towards your child, you're not going to believe that that person loves you because if they loved you, they wouldn't treat your children that way. And we can't claim to love God and treat his children that way either. It doesn't work that way. It says that, that if we do that, what we're doing is that, that we're blocking out the light. It says in verse 11, anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. The sad thing is that that's a decision that we have made. And when we live with hatred toward another brother or sister in Christ, let me tell you what we're doing. We're doing something like this. We are just putting on the blinders, and we're walking around. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not going to walk very far, because if I do, I'll fall off the front of the stage. Because when you are walking without the ability to see where you are going, bad stuff happens. And not only does bad stuff happen, but you kind of look like an idiot too, right? Why in the world would we walk around with our, our eyes blinded? It doesn't make any sense. We need, to, we need to take it off. And the way we do that is by living in, in right relationship with one another. It's by loving one another. So, again, not, not overly complex, but this can be hard to do sometimes. And I wonder if any of us, as we're talking about loving other believers, I wonder if there's somebody in your life Maybe a fellow Christian, or maybe in some cases it's not. Same principle might still apply, although he's talking specifically here about those within the family of God. But is there somebody that if you're being honest, you have hatred in your heart toward that person? A spouse? A former spouse? A neighbor? A boss? Somebody that you used to call a friend and something happened? Is there anybody that... Honestly, you're having a difficult time loving. And when the answer to that question is yes, 
we may not realize that, that we're being pulled into the darkness when we allow that to happen. And it may be that in order for us to, to, to get free from that, we need to go through a process of, of forgiveness, a process of letting go of that bitterness and that anger and that hatred that's in our heart and, and saying, and, and by the way, this isn't always easy to do. This may be something we really have to pray. God, help me to have your love for this person. But I'm going to choose to forgive. I'm going to choose to do it. Even though I don't feel like it, I believe that you can lead me down this path of doing that. We can't walk in, in fellowship with God as long as we have hatred towards somebody else. Um, it's amazing sometimes how really practical and really clear Scripture can be. And this is one of those. So I want to encourage you to deal with that because I want to see you be free. Because I want to see you live in the light. I want to live in the light. I don't want to walk around in darkness because it says that when we do that, the darkness blinds us. And bad things happen when we can't see where we're going. You ever wake up in the middle of the night, complete darkness, and you try to go somewhere and you, you, know, you trip over something that you forgot was there, or you step on a child's toy that got left by your bed, or whatever it may be, and it's like that bad things happen when we walk around in darkness. But we don't have to. We don't have to do that. And one of the things that, that, that is necessary is for us to love people. Yeah, how do we get there? Let me go back to, what, to where we, we started on the front end, and that is with a reminder that we love because he first loved us. See, we don't have the capacity to love people uh, unconditionally until we've experienced the love of God unconditionally in our own lives as well. And I want to encourage you to just go back to that moment, reflect on that, and, and remember that God loves you that way. And that our response to that love is to love him how do we do that? Well, at least two ways we've seen today. We live in obedience to his commands, and we love other people. It's a simple way for us to express our love for God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for loving us the way you do, and I pray that, that we really do respond with love and obedience toward you as well. And uh, God, just change our hearts where we need to be uh, where it needs to be changed, Lord, for specifically people in our lives that we may wrestle with and not love. Lord, I pray that you would do your work there and that you would help us um, to be able to walk in the light because we are loving each other well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.